insurance agents from around the world. Hey, guys, this is Scott Howell with the Insurance Guys podcast, and I protect insurance. I am proud to announce our 2023 title sponsor, Hawksoft. Guys, I, I did not need a script for this one. I can talk about Hawksoft all day long. Started in 1995 by Mr. Paul Hawkins. He and his family started as one of the very first agency management systems designed by an insurance agent specifically to improve productivity and workflows in your agency. And by the way, guys, still today in 2023, a privately held company means a lot to me, should mean a lot to you. Hawksoft's commercial and personal lines insurance platform is intuitive, it's efficient, and built to be customized to your independent agency's process, not the other way around. With a wide range of core features included in their base package, plus a host of API partner integrations that allows agents to customize their technology stack. That is exactly what we've done in our agency at iProtect Insurance. Guys, I don't even need to talk about their customer service because there's nobody, as far as vendors go, with independent agents. In my opinion, there is nobody that comes close to Hawksoft's customer experience and their customer service. Period. End of story. Full stop. They stand behind their promise. Your investment in Hawksoft will pay for itself in the very first year. Here's what I need you to do, guys. Go to www.hawksoft.com forward slash insurance guys or email them sales at hawksoft.com. Find out why I protect insurance, why we use and love the Hawksoft agency management system, and be sure to mention the Insurance Guys podcast. Take care. Hey guys, it's Bradley. I want to tell you about Ascend. Ascend is not just another premium finance company. Ascend will solve all of your agency bill problems through automation of invoicing, premium financing, carrier payables, all the way to the end of the workflow. There's a lot of hidden costs with how you're doing business today. AMSs, CRMs can spend more than half the day chasing down payments, following up on non-pays, getting signatures for financing docs. This leads to an overworked, overwhelmed, unhappy team. And guys, you want your team to be happy. Industry's hard enough as it is. We really need them to be happy. As your agency grows, this issue gets worse and worse. And we typically solve the problem with a little bit of software, but a ton of manpower still involved. With Ascend, you can use a software first solution and just need a little bit of manpower, allowing you to grow without significant increase in overhead. Ascend automates all of these repetitive payment processes so your team can get back to helping your clients. With Ascend, we've seen non-payment cancellations in our agency go down up to 95%. Teams save more than 20 hours per month when they work with Ascend and an average of a 75% decrease in payment-related customer questions. Guys, if people aren't calling your office with questions, you have more time to sell and grow your agency. Visit useascend.com backslash insurance, guys. Guys, Ascend makes agency bill as easy as direct bill, but you keep all of the benefits of agency bill the best of both worlds. Thanks, guys. Insurance agents from around the world, welcome to the Insurance Guys podcast, powered by Hawksoft. God, I love Hawksoft. 
My name is Scott Howell, your fearless host and leader, insurance agency owner and insurance evangelist for iProtect Insurance and Financial Services, based out of Huntsville, Alabama. And before we get started on today's episode, he's a $7 million bull rider out of Mobile, Alabama, parade first team All-American rivals, five-star recruit. He is a fantastic insurance agent and a great American. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and welcome the incomparable Mr. Bradley Flowers. How are you, Bradley? Man, I'm I'm good. Anytime I get to to have Chick-fil-A with with you mm. and then go right into a podcast, I'm good. Man, I'm telling you what. Bradley's on my same lunch schedule, folks. If y'all don't know, you're looking, if you're on YouTube right now, and I know we need to get everything back up and running on YouTube again, you're looking at skinny Scott instead of fat Scott. Yeah. I've dropped down to about 240 pounds. You have. You look good. Uh, you have the weight loss gene. Like, you can lose weight really easy. Like, it's unbelievable. You'll see me, and I'll just be look like a damn fat pig troll. And then the next time you see me, I've lost 40 pounds in like a month. It's crazy how I can do that. My wife looks at me, and she's like, I hate you so much. Because <laughs> I can literally get up to 275 and in a month and a half be to 235. And I can go any which way right. I want to go. Yeah, the first time I met you in person, you were you were kind of kind of chubby, right? And then I didn't see you for six months. Uh huh. And then I saw you in the parking lot right out here. You're standing out there in a black evil Knievel t-shirt, right? And you were skinny as a bean pole. I mean, and I was like, this dude's got to be taking like steroids or something to like make him drop this weight. Crystal meth. Or yeah. <laughs> no, what I do is uh, when I decide I don't want to weigh, like when I don't want to be a fat pig is I drop down to only eating one meal a day. Mm. So I'll drink like a, a Gatorade. Kind of fasting. Coffee in the morning, not eat breakfast. Maybe yeah. just have like a bowl of Cheerios or something. Don't eat lunch. Maybe walk a mile, mile and a half throughout the day or come home or before I go to work, walk, walk like a mile. And then my, really the only meal I eat is dinner. And I eat like a, just a normal dinner. And then after about a month of that, I'm down usually 20, 30 pounds. So it's very hard for people that aren't like that because they hate me so much that I can do that <laughs> at any given time. But it's, uh, I don't know, man, it's just easy for me. My hack is protein. So I try to eat yep. a very, uh, a fast in the morning. I try to eat a very high protein, a protein dense lunch. Mm -hmm. So like I just had. Who Chick-fil-A 12 counts, 600 calories, but the, I think it's like 80 grams protein. Correct. So I feel like, oh, my God, I could not eat one more thing. And then that gets you just long enough to go into dinner, have you about a 1,000-calorie dinner. You're good, you know? Right. So if anybody ever wants to know how important protein is in your diet, if you watch four or five episodes of Naked and Afraid, you will see <laughs> those people by about day 10 are like, if I can just catch an iguana right now, I will <laughs> – I will gr I will put that on a fire and eat it like nobody's business. <laughs> it's every episode of Naked and Afraid is like day 10, I've got to have protein right now. I found a website last night where you could buy elk meat. Yeah. And I was like, I'm yeah. going to order some some elk meat because mm -hmm. I've heard it's so good. It's very good. Well, I got to looking on there and they had alligator. Mm. They had duck. Yep. And they had, of all things, kangaroo. Never had kangaroo in my life. I, never. Sent, I sent the link to David Carruthers and I said, find out the best way to cook kangaroo and get back to me. Uh-huh. Yeah. So never. Yeah. Elk, elk, elk's very high and um, very healthy, very high in protein, very lean. Uh, I don't like duck. 
don't like um, either. No, it's 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 got kind of to me kind of a gamey taste to it. And anybody you know that talks about it not tasting gamey, you either have to boil it for fourteen hours. I'm being yeah. funny, but or wrap it in bacon. Which I'm like, well, how about we just eat yeah. bacon without the duck? Yeah. How about that? I like I like deer meat. That's probably my mm-hmm. favorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, good like deer jerky or deer sausage. Deer mm-hmm. burgers are good. Hey, uh, before I introduce our all-star guest on, one of the people pro- probably has as much or, or more of a uh, resume of success than anybody I've ever interviewed, and I've interviewed a lot of people. Uh, Bradley, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Paradiso Mastermind I just returned yeah. from out in Utah, and I wanted to give my, our listeners just a little flavor of what happened out there. So Chris Paradiso brings in a guy who who I befriended – I. I Really should have him on the podcast. He's been now. He's been on a couple of insurance podcasts since I I got back. But his name is Christus. I called him Chris. Christus Provostalis is his name. Uh, if you want to follow him or, or reach out to him on Facebook, he worked for Disney for some period of time. He was the he was the speaker, the main keynote speaker that Paradiso brought in for the first day of the Mastermind event. I wanted to throw out just to, to our podcast listening audience, some of the notes that I took on my phone listening to him. I actually recorded him on my phone, but I won't play that. I'm just going to give you guys some cliff notes because the mission of this podcast never changes. And that is to help you guys in any way we can. And and I just wanted to throw out some of the things he said. Maybe it'll speak to somebody that's listening to this right now. First thing I wrote down that he said, now this is after years and years of working at Disney. Uh, he and his family now own a, a, a business, a restaurant up in the Northeast. He said, the more someone is emotionally invested in you, the less critical they will be of you. Let me say that again. <laughs> the more someone is emotionally invested in you, the less critical they are of you. The next thing he said that I wrote down, we are all in the customer perception business. Whether you want to be or not, we are all in the customer perception business. The next thing he said, guys, I'm just giving you some notes. You can write these down from a guy that worked for Disney for some, uh, a, a, a lot of time throughout his life, worked at Disney World. Touch your clients in a way that your competition has no understanding of. I'll say that again. Touch your clients in a way that your competition has no understanding of. Then he asked the audience, what do you sell? I mean, what do you really sell? Question mark. What do you sell? Last thing he said, actually last two things he said, life is about connecting. The most beautiful things in life can only be felt. They can't be seen. They can't be touched and they can't be heard. They can only be felt. Last one I'll give you guys, one hour presentation. These are some of the notes I took. Your job is to create customers that create customers. Most of the agency owners I talk to, when I ask them, where do you get the majority of your business? A lot of them will say customer referrals. That rolls into what he's talking about here. Create customers that creates customers. If you have an interest in him speaking to your team, 
The website is www.christosspeaks.com. I think I wrote this down correctly. Uh, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-S-S-P-E-A-K-S.com. Christosspeaks.com. Uh, very reasonably priced. And I think uh, for those of you that could afford it, which is not a ton of money, I know how much it is, but I'm not going to say it on the air. That's for him to talk about. But, uh, you know, if you've got a pretty good size agency, I would seriously consider having him come in and talk to your people. He is uh, very emotionally charged out of the gate. He tells a few stories to begin with that I can promise you you'll sit up in your seat when you hear them. But I just wanted to roll through that with you guys for just a minute. Now, let's bring in our all-star guest today. And as I told him, I want to give him the introduction he's always deserved. Ladies and gentlemen, he's originally from Detroit, Michigan, and he currently resides in San Antonio, Texas. He is married to the beautiful Tracy, and they have four boys ranging in age from 16 down to four. Boy, I'm glad I'm out of that. I'm out of that game now. He's a graduate of the University of Michigan, earning a bachelor's degree of literature and from the University of Chicago with an MBA from the School of Business. He has been in the in his past life, and I'm not going to roll through all of his accomplishments. There are too many to even mention, but I'm going to give you two that are going to make you turn the volume up on your radio here in just a second. He was the regional executive vice president for the West Region for the largest insurance agency in the United States of America, AccraSure. He has been the regional executive vice president for the West region for AccraSure. He has also been the president, president of agency operations for PCF Insurance Services. And today, he is the founder and CEO of Fidelis Advisors. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my profound honor to introduce to you first-time guest on the IGP but I can promise you it will not be his last. Mr. Robert William Smith. How you doing, Rob? Nice. Thanks for having me. Man, thank you for being here. I appreciate you being on the show. Before we get into where we are today, you have, you know, Dr. Billy Williams always talks about successful people have a very large resume of success throughout their life. I have not men, met many folks that have a bigger resume of success than you have here in front of me right now. I want to go back in my DeLorean for just a moment and talk about how you got into the insurance industry and just kind of bring us up to today, Rob. I'll, I'll give you the, the condensed version. There you go. And, and I appreciate that very kind introduction. I, I, I'm, not sure I, I'm not sure I deserve all that, but it's very gracious of you. And, and so thank you for that. I got in the insurance business like a lot of people did, um, very much accidentally. I, I started my career as a consultant for a business called Arthur Anderson, and they had a, a group focused on strategy, finance, and economics. And the reality at the time was the businesses that were paying the bills at that time were insurers. Mm-hmm. And so very quickly, I realized that, look, if, if this is going to be a, you know, a, a good situation, I'm going to need to educate myself and and learn about this industry because those were really the client organizations. And so I was fortunate enough to, you know, early days have an opportunity to work with some large clients of that business, Allstate, CNA, Cigna, and, and the like. And in the process, I was able to get an education in terms of the industry structure and other things, which turned out to be very beneficial when Arthur 
began to go through some of its difficulties. And obviously that organization is, is no longer around, but some of the people that they brought in from the industry, people that actually were practitioners in the industry to try to educate the, you know, little consultants running around, you know, building these out, building these outrageous sums for, for Arthur to, to make sure that we had proper context and that we actually had the language of the business. We understood something about it. You know, fortunately for me, and they, they were kind enough to kind of steer and guide me early days. And, and that's how I wound up initially going to work for, for Marsh out of Chicago. And so I spent you know, a good period of my career, about 14 years working in what you might call that big institutional range, Marsh, Aon, and, and, and for a hot minute, Wells Fargo. Then I, you know, but fortunate enough to be favored with an opportunity. Someone came and kind of said, "Listen, here, here's this opportunity to go to work for a business called Acrisure. They're they're really looking to make a, a focus in the West." At that time, I lived in Southern California, and so I, you know, for a minute, I thought they, I thought they were looking at the wrong guy. I thought they wanted some crop insurance expert from the old Wells Fargo Insurance. I'm say, I'm like, guys, I, you know, I don't know much about the ag space and. They said, no, no, it's it's just a name and and you know, let's let's wind through it a little bit. Let's understand kind of this proposition, this this at the time, not not any longer today, but at the time, very much an alternative business model. And it was one that was predicated on on sort of minimizing disruption mm-hmm. around acquired businesses and this idea that you could go and effectively aggregate these businesses, bring them together on a very limited integration basis and create a value spread for investors. And the belief or the prevailing belief at that time was as long as you're aligning incentives with those operators, with those businesses that are being acquired, is that they will perform and have every reason to continue to perform. And, and so a very light touch concept, which is, which is what they went forward with at that time. And which I think was, you know, which I think resonated with a number of folks that were, you know, call them previously independent or independent agents that were, you know, willing to, you know, consider a, a meaningful liquidity event in, 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 in their professional career and in their lives and in their families' lives on the belief that, you know, after that transaction that the world will, you know, feel substantially similar to the way the world felt the day before. And I think initially there, there was a lot of reality to that. I think, you know, I think as, as that business has continued to evolve through time, I, I think some things are quite a bit different than that today, but I also would would just observe that, you know, that that notion, right? I mean, it's no secret any longer that that private equity likes a lot about the insurance distribution business, and so, you know, there there are probably forty or more variants of that kind of you know private equity backed platform distribution aggregation or distribution consolidation strategy in the market today. So p- people can feel what they want about Acrisure, but I, I think they were certainly among the earlier market participants to really understand that there was a significant opportunity there and, mm. and that you know private equity capital would, would continue to look at this space as being very attractive for a variety of reasons. What do, what do you think when you look at these big PE-backed firms where do you think the, and this may be like jumping just right to probably my best question, like wh- where do you think the opportunity is now in that game? That's a great question. And I, I, frankly, I think, you know, when you're having conversations with, 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 with private equities that are, that are, that are really kind of trying to ask the same question. Uh, so it's a great question. And, and I think there, there's this general observation that the, the attributes that made or, or makes insurance distribution attractive are, are, 
are, are durable, right? I mean, you, you have very low CapEx requirements. You've got good cash flow. You've got recurring revenue streams. And you've got, this is something I think sometimes people miss, but you, you've got this sort of natural ability in insurance distribution to scale your expense profile to the revenue opportunities that exist in the marketplace, which, which sort of translates across to it being a very resilient business. Mm. And I think in 2020, in particular, we saw that with some of the larger brokerages actually posting growth, you know, despite having a, you know, a very limited economy with, with a lot of the restrictions that, that prevailed at that time. And I, I think it just was an additional validation of, of, of the suitability from a PE standpoint, wanting to invest in the space. So I think there continues to be a lot of interest I think the challenge now is really twofold. If you're thinking of it in the context of an investor, the challenge is twofold. It's it's number one, where are the opportunities for differentiation, which I think gets right back to your question. And given that it's, it's become a fairly crowded space, right? I mean, th- th- this is not a, these are not sort of rare businesses any longer. And, and then, you know, piece number two is, with the competitiveness that that brings for the soon to be previously independent insurance agents and brokers, now that each one is, is being favored with, you know, two, four, six, eight potential opportunities, depending on who's banking them and all that stuff. And they all have their favorites. But in, in, in reality, what used to be true that we used to be true and you go back into the, the you know, the, the, the old days of, uh, of the early Acrisure plays where it was like, look, we're looking at platforms that are six or eight or $10 million of, of revenue and two, three, $4 million EBITDA. And, and they were able to acquire those businesses for, you know, seven, eight, seven X, eight X EBITDA and, and trade as a platform in that again, before times, right. These are, these aren't current numbers, but in the before times trade at 12, 13, you know, whatever it was. And, and in so doing capturing a, a fairly nice, you know, moment of value realization just through, you know, scaling that business in that way. Today, you're actually seeing that spread narrow considerably for any assets at scale. So if you're talking about an independent insurance agency that's, you know, got its own internal systems, it's it's scaled up to $10 million, it's got a, you know, a degree of sophistication and all that, that business is likely to be a 12x trade for what? A platform that's trading at 14 and so what you've got is you've got a narrowing in terms of the opportunity for those market participants to bake in value. And you've got that, you know, what I'll call much narrower margin of safety that goes into those investment activities when they're intermediating that capital. And so it comes right back, Brad, to your question, which is where, where are the opportunities today? And I would say, number one, I, I would say that the greatest opportunity is really to begin looking closely at agencies that are in fact smaller scale. The, some of the main street agencies that have not through time really been the focus of these aggregation platforms that have been looking to consume assets at scale. And so, you know, wh- why is that? Well, there are a variety of reasons for that. No- number one is they haven't experienced the same kind of multiple appreciation that those scaled agencies have. Number two, I think, the opportunity to, to, to partner with businesses like that, you can solve a couple of problems for those businesses that are a little bit different than what you see with some of the scale operators. So you think about 
what level of exposure access to technology have they really had? If you're talking about a half a million or a million dollar business, are, are they able to effectively consume those technologies and internalize them? Or given their scale, have they been able to, I mean, can, can they go hire somebody to do that kind of work if they themselves are not the person that is expert in understanding how to, how to bring or incorporate technology into their business? If the answer to that question is no, and I would argue it probably is, and then we also know, and there are a number of studies out there that, that really support this, that the, the businesses that thrive, the businesses that consistently grow, the businesses that you can have an impact on, businesses that use things like you know digital demand or you know demand generation, digital lead generation, lead distribution, things like that, a, a platform can bring that to these smaller operators in a way that's efficient for them that would bias that population towards success and growth. Another way to think of it is, you know, the, the potential, the role of technology in achieving automation or more efficient outcomes within the agency environment themselves. Again, not something incredibly accessible to those businesses as independents, but if you are able to bring something like that forward, make it in a sort of a digestible package or something that a smaller operator can, can efficiently internalize, I think that's where the greatest opportunity to participate in this business is today, create a virtuous ecosystem that actually biases the outcomes for these smaller operators. So that not only do you get that sort of margin of safety on the investment side, right? You're coming in in a lower multiple environment than would otherwise be the case at scale, but you have this tremendous opportunity to actually influence the, the performance of these businesses right. and, and to do it in, in, a, in a way that actually creates a lot of value just based on performance, mm -hmm. as opposed to just trying to play financial games. Well, hello there. Guys, excuse me for interrupting your regularly scheduled podcast, but I'm here today to get you out of aggregator and cluster jail. This may be the most important message I've ever delivered on the Insurance Guys podcast. Guys, are you a member of a cluster or an aggregator? Does your contract have exit fees, termination payments, buyback provisions? It's time to get your freedom back and do what we did here at iProtect Insurance. Join the AC the future of aggregators in our industry. Best decision we've ever made, guys. Best decision we've ever made. No entry fees, small $200 a month membership fee, over 50 plus carriers for direct appointments. And by the way, new ones coming on board each and every month. You keep 100% of your commissions, profit sharing every year. Guys, we have made in the last two years, each year, our agency has made over $100,000 in profit sharing. Here's the best part, guys. And this is the part I'm the most passionate about. No termination or exit fees. You give the AC 60 days notice and you're free. You go get direct appointments wherever you want. There's no buyback provisions, no exit clauses. Guys, if you're a member of another aggregator, and you have termination fees, buyback provisions, exit clauses, every single policy you write, you're digging that hole just a little bit deeper. And one day you're not going to be able to get out of it. 
it's going to be too much. You're going to be taking out a second mortgage on your home to try to get out of a cluster group. Unbelievable. Guys, go to acfree.org. That's acfree.org and register. Find out why over 650 agencies and $3 billion in premium have chosen the AC. And guys, here's the best part. But wait, there's more. Mention the Insurance Guys podcast when you talk to these guys and you get six months. That's six months of no membership fee just by mentioning the Insurance Guys podcast. Go today, www.acfree.org, and let me help you get your freedom back. Have a great day. Well, if you look at like, so I've been on the acquiring end of, of looking at a lot of Main Street agencies in the last two years. A lot of Main Street agencies are run very well, but very inefficient at the same time. You know what I mean? It's like they're, they're, they're run so inefficient, they're run well. And, and if you, if you look at, I love getting like the PL or, or whether it be carrier spreadsheets or, or even going in the agency and kind of sitting down behind the owner's desk. And it's, it's kind of like, I don't know if you're a golfer, Rob, but when, when you're playing golf, if you're playing bad, you have no idea what the hell you're doing wrong, but you can look at your buddy and tell them exactly what they're doing. Being able to look at it from like that unbiased third party view. I think there's a lot of opportunity to create some spread there off of an agent. I mean, you know, I mentioned this on an earlier podcast, but I spoke to a group of 400 agents the day after I saw you last month and asked them who, who in there, who in there was using a CRM and zero hands came up. I mean, just, just the, just implementing a very basic, simple CRM creates so much more efficiency from the way things are done now, just from the standpoint of, Hey, having all your leads in front of you. So you know what you're working on. You don't have to use the brain space to remember it. You know, it's Rob, a great observation. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that's a great observation. I think it, it hits on a key point, right? Which is in some of these smaller businesses, some of these smaller distribution assets, they have a lot of common challenges. And I think Brad's comment about these are really well run businesses in their way. They're conscientious. They tend to be, you know, devoted to serving their communities. I think they, they care a lot about the well-being of their clients, and they want to make sure that they're doing right by all parties to the transaction. They tend to be these sort of very ethical businesses. But I think they also face that common set of constraints, which is number one, what got them into the business in the first place was a desire to help, a desire to serve, a desire to, you know, to, to do good things in the community and to help people out. And, and, and insurance becomes sort of that product, that pathway that they became expert at that enabled them to do it. But it, you know, as they then went and sort of built that book of business, built their client population and portfolio, you know, what, what perhaps did they either enjoy doing less or had less sort of a natural inclination for? And a lot of it would be along that sort of operational financial dimension and taking a step back once they'd sort of cultivated that portfolio and said, look, is there a better way to do this? It will permit me to being sort of out there doing what I do best, which is, you know, which is delivering insurance solutions to people or, or, or whatever it happens to be. And, and either not having that opportunity or not being comfortable 
reorienting their attention to say, how do we rethink the operation itself so that it can better scale to allow me or my team or whatever it happens to be more time to be out in the world doing the things that that we really got into this business to do in the first place. And so you get a lot of that sort of duct taping in the back office environment just to try to survive that next day, as opposed to really having the capacity or even necessarily having the orientation or expertise to go build in those things. And to your point, Brad, I mean, you know, I, I think we've probably shared a lot of common experiences. Those businesses that gear towards CRM that and then, you know, has some kind of baseline sensible integration where the CRM can feed the financial system, feed the policy or agency management system, whatever it is. But being able to just see the opportunities to put those things together or introduce other kinds of, uh, of potentially, you know, time saving, expense saving, efficiency enhancing technologies to go guide and orient that business so that they can scale efficiently and effectively. I think that's that's really a big part. And, and I think that's where, whether it's an advisor, an investor, what have you, I think that's where there's a great opportunity to make an impact is to help serve and support these businesses to really unlock their performance potential. Because they're doing a lot of very right things, yeah. but it's it's sort of inside those four walls. How do you optimize that platform so that those folks can grow and experience the kind of success that that they're willing to to make happen. Absolutely. You know, I, what you just described a few minutes ago about challenges and opportunities relative to growth with companies like Hub, PCF, Acresure, uh, I'm kind of the perfect model of that within our my agency our agency at iProtect because I have published an article where I talk about I'm, I'm 51 years old. I would like to retire at age 60. My agency is very forward thinking relative to technology, robotic automation, CRM, AMS. My agency force is young. I have a 16 year commercial account manager who's only like 37 years old, like started when she was like 20, 21 with one of the largest agencies in the state of Alabama, maybe the largest agency in the state of Alabama. I will say this, the one thing that blows my skirt up when people call me to want to talk about some form of buyout slash partnership, you know, I make good money. I make the kind of money that I don't have to worry financially about where I'm at or paying my bills, but I don't make, I don't make boy dog money. I mean, I still live in a mean ball and pawpaw house and have an above ground swimming pool that my wife and I swim in with a $10,000 wood deck or 10,000 square foot deck around it. The thing that blows my bell bottoms up is is that a good thing or a bad thing? Good, it's good, it's okay, good, okay. it's good, it's sure. good. Okay. Yeah, so I was asking for yeah. the listeners. Makes my drawers wet. Uh, that, that would have been a better way to say it. Yeah, is because I'm that perfect example. If you want to look up the 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 Merriam-Webster dictionary of who you're talking about relative to the next opportunity for these guys at about a million and a half, a million seven in revenue a year would be the opportunity to partner with a larger organization simply from the standpoint of giving me more resources 
and better resources for our niche of business that would allow us to, without saying, I mean, I guess I am saying it, have more horsepower behind us from both a, a people standpoint and a carrier standpoint of never having to worry about walking into a meeting and, or, or having a, a request for proposal come across my desk and have to worry about whether we got the, the horsepower from a carrier standpoint to write this business. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is I talk a lot about on this podcast, this business having different levels to it. So when you get up to this top, top, top echelon level and you're getting a request for a proposal from a multi-billion dollar company, whoever is running the risk management for that company from a CYA perspective is always typically going to go with a larger group because it gives them job security. And what I mean by that, and I've talked to Louis Gazzatua about this at length, the guy working for Southern Railways that is in the risk management side of their business doesn't have to worry about being fired because he went with Hub or Accursure. Where he has to worry about getting fired is when he gives the business to I Protect Insurance, right? Because then his then his head's on the chopping block. That's the area of that whole equation that would blow my bell bottoms up relative to possibly partnering with one of those types of carriers. And then from their perspective, I've got 10 more years and I got somebody behind me with 25% ownership in my agency. That's got 10 more years behind me. Does that make sense? It makes sense. I think the great observation, right. Is, is you think about those businesses that have, some scale that have some size and the perception of depth. And I, I would even go past, you know, the accuracies of the world. And, you know, there, there was an old expression that, you know, people were, you know, looking at opportunities and, and trying to figure out where to claw business away from Marsh. And one of the greatest advantages they had was just what you just described, right. Which is no one ever gets fired for, for picking Marsh. It's the conventional choice. Correct, and so that even if something goes tra- you know horribly wrong in terms of the service or the placement of the product, you know, whatever it happens to be, but y- you went with the co- you did the conventional thing, correct. So you're not worried about having to take the heat for making right. an unconventional choice, even if you're really targeting out a certain kind of expertise. And it it does make the case, especially when you're thinking about some of those you know as a as a smaller organization or a smaller practitioner targeting out some some larger clients and then having a certain kind of specialty or industry expertise, something that you can point to, you know, not, not as much in terms of making the case, although it's part of that as well, but making the case for whoever your contact is inside an organization like that, but really empowering them to be able to work internally and say, look, it, it had nothing to do with that. There's a very specific kind of expertise that we need. And when we go with this firm, you're going to get not only the firm, you're going to get the guy or the gal. You're going to get the access to the market that demands that kind of expertise. Right. And so using a quote unquote boutique, right, can, can actually be a very appropriate, very wise choice. And so I, I think there, there's that aspect of it. Right. But I, I think you, you made a, a very good observation just saying, look, I mean, one of, one of the value propositions, one of the plays 
around some kind of either accepting the offer and becoming a part of one of those larger organizations, right? Furnishing your business into it, or even potentially, and I think this is a great possibility or potential that I, I think agents might wish to consider. I think they should consider it and we can get into, you know, sort of the value exchange and who captures it. But it is that idea of, of look, you know, if, if I'm part of a, you know, a, a larger consolidated block, whatever that means and whatever form that takes, it, it's really helping me get all of the things that I need to ultimately be successful. And, and, and what's someone going to need to be successful? I mean, look, I mean, again, there's a pretty high correlation between sophistication around demand generation, digital marketing, digital lead generation, distribution, all, all that stuff correlates pretty strongly towards actually experiencing organic growth if it's done well. Right. Having access to some kind of, of, of enterprise level program that offers that back out to all of the distribution assets and all of the partners inside whatever ecosystem like that looks like. And piece number two is access to markets. Right. I mean, so the ability to trade on a fairly broad basis and the ability to actually extract market forward economics is not a small thing. And so as, as you think about all the insurance companies that in the current environment are trying to figure out how to make their trading platforms more efficient, they're not going in the direction of saying, hey, look, let's open up a whole bunch of very small fractionalized appointments that we can then manage administratively and all that. They're going quite the opposite direction, which I think is, is constraining, is kind of threatening the independence opportunity to continue to access those markets directly. You know, why, why is that a hardship? Well, I mean, think about the economics, right? I mean, so if you have to go through an intermediary, now you're sharing the, the, the potential revenue associated with the great work you're doing on behalf of your clients. Mm -hmm. And so being able to maximize the opportunity to trade directly where you have that expertise and, and really only rely on intermediaries where they're offering something other than a pathway to a market, you know, some kind of expertise that you don't maintain in house because it doesn't scale. I think that's, you know, that that's one of the real reasons why mm -hmm. someone might want to consider an approach that brings together volume so that you have that influence among the carrier community. And, and, and then again, the, you know, the final piece again is, is making sure that you got the right gearing in the back office right operational insights, right architecture and infrastructure to sustain the business as it continues to scale. And so I, I think you put all those things together. I think you, you create a very, you create a pathway for a very successful business. And it's, it's just what form do those external supports take? Correct. And I think there's actually a really strong argument in, in the, in the current environment. I'm not sure, not, not, not sure the big aggregators love, love this thought entirely, but, but that's okay. Um, but is this idea of even creating you know, these synthetic platforms where you get six or eight or, or, or whatever it happens to be, you know, smaller businesses that have some level of, of capital support from the outside, whatever that looks like, to bring together those volumes, but to put together all of those supportive resources and technologies so that you create eight, 10, 12, whatever the number is, million dollar business in which all of those participants are, are, are partners and, and also invested in the business still have some equity in it. Maybe it's a minority equity position, but it's equity nonetheless. And then those businesses, now that you've got 10 or $12 million, you're, you're, you've actually captured that spread, right? You, you've captured that value creation mm -hmm. so that at whatever point in time that 
platform, that come together of those smaller businesses may choose to transact with a larger platform. Now you're going at 12 or something in that range. That platform may have valuation at 14. So they're getting some realization as well. But y'all went from six or seven or eight, whatever the number was, to 12. And so if you're going to go through those kind of decisions, if you're going to participate in, in, in some kind of you know eventual sales transaction for whatever reason, at least you're actually getting the benefit of a lot of that value creation within that platform and, and, and for that business, as opposed to letting the larger aggregators take a seven to 14 spread. Well, what's your, what, yeah, what you're saying in doing that, let's say myself, Bradley and six other agencies of similar size to ours partner together, form a bigger corporate umbrella where the eight of us still conduct business as usual, but we as a group are all underneath this umbrella. When it comes time to partner with somebody, maybe instead of getting that multiple of this number, now you're getting a two or three times bigger number than you would have gotten on your own a, a, a merit as that one agency. Yeah. And, and and you can either do the kind of come together or you could have a strategic partner or investor that comes in to help introduce certain things right. that will drive performance for that set of joined interests, right? Because there, there's a couple pieces to it. Number one, what's going to make it an attractive asset is, is the scale. Uh-huh. But one of the, the other things that will make it attractive asset would be the sophistication associated with the larger whole and the performance associated with the larger whole. Right. So that let, let's say you get a common CRM system that everyone agrees to participate in, and then you go and trade in the marketplace with that sort of common name, that common reference point. And so does that open up additional insurer vectors? And then you've got those additional direct insurer relationships, which is then repricing, right? Because now you're not necessarily needing to go through a wholesaler as frequently as you did before, you think about the sequential repricing for transacting the very same amount of premium that you were before, but now you're getting rewarded with 15 points of commission as opposed to 10, Correct. right? For doing the very same work that you were doing before. So you begin to re- experience some of those economies of scale. And then if you have that strategic investor that's come in as a partner with, with y'all in, in, in that kind of venture that can do some of the tech enablement that actually virtually virtuously impacts performance so that now you've got all of the boxes checked, right? If you've got organic growth, you can show margin improvement, you have scale, right? And, and you have the common systems, the, the, the very basic data integrations. And, and again, you know, we're, we're not talking about, you know, splitting the atom, or anything right. like that. There are a lot of existing technologies that if they're incorporated in a consistent, intelligent way, that will have a meaningful impact on the businesses. And we know what they are and where they are. Right. Now you've got a, a, effectively a world-class asset, right? You, you, you've, you've gone and done the work of basically fabricating a world-class asset that any of those aggregation platforms would be very pleased to have, especially if it's got that kind of organic growth characteristic. Right. which they're all looking for, right? And so, but I think in, in thinking of it that way, you're actually sharing in the value creation much more powerfully than if you all sort of approach it independently or separately. And so you've got a million dollar 
revenue business, it's throwing off $300,000 of EBITDA, that's getting priced at seven or eight X or, or, or whatever it is. And you know, maybe you got some you know, opportunity to enhance that value through performance as an owned asset over time, earnouts or what have you. But I mean, you, you think about that versus contributing $300,000 of EBITDA into a 10 unit ecosystem where it's total $3 million. So you, you, you may only, you know, your, your proportional interest in that's still just a 10th of it, right? I mean, you're going to take out your share, mm-hmm. but that $3 million could very easily go at 12X, right? And so now your proportional share of that might be $300,000. Maybe you grew to $350,000 because of everything you had available to you in terms of, or, or even $400,000. And that four hundred thousand dollars now gets, you know, times twelve as opposed to three hundred thousand dollars. It was times seven. Correct. Right. So you think about extracting and, and and making sure that you're that the you know the the previously independent Main Street agencies are actually able to realize a majority of that value creation. Right. And I think that's something that I, I think that's where there's a significant opportunity going forward is is creating those synthetic platforms that have real performance characteristics, maybe some smaller external investment that comes in alongside these partners, but can really create something pretty compelling. Hey, I got a question for you. I got two mm-hmm. questions before I let you off the show. You know, for years, banks were bullish on getting into the insurance business and buying agencies. I don't hear as much of that going on anymore as I used to. Banks like Wells Fargo would buy a retail agency business and bring it in to Wells Fargo. And then uh, where the wheels kind of fell off the bus as it was going down the road is it felt to me like the banks themselves were very good at buying these agencies at whatever multiple they were buying them at, but then they didn't really know how to run an insurance agency. And over time, that agency would, uh, of course, now it's called the Wells Fargo insurance, blah, blah, blah. And I'm saying Wells Fargo, but there were a lot of banks that did this. There's credit unions that have created separate divisions of their credit union Oh, what do they call those? It's like a services type organization, basically another division of the credit union. But all of these organizations in the in the financial advisory type scenario, really good at buying agencies, really bad at running them. They just don't understand well, that. Well, world. what happens? What happens too is, and and this is what happens with like these real estate. So I was at a charity event recently, and a a, a mortgage lender that's not a I'm not. I don't exactly jive with, but we're friendly was like, yeah, well, you hear we're starting an insurance agency. And I said, dude, that's awesome. That's great until a hurricane comes up the Gulf and, and Mama wants to know what, how you're going to help her with her roof blown away or, or Johnny wants to know why his insurance went like y'all, y'all don't want to handle that side of things. Right. And so the problem with the whole bank thing and the real estate thing is there's a variable there that you can't control. Right. The carrier. Wells Fargo can't control what the carrier does. Right. That carrier can do something stupid that hurts that client. And guess who they're pissed off at? Wells Fargo. Right. That's, that's, I think, the variable they don't account for. Yeah. What is your take? What is your take on that? I don't hear as many banks out here, you know, running around trying to buy retail agencies anymore. Is what Bradley described have the astute, 
CEOs and board of uh, uh, board of directors decided that that basically this shit's more trouble than it's worth. And we and, and by the way, let me tell you where they shine: banks and credit unions. So over here, you've got the retail agency, which they don't know shit from shampoo about how to run. So mm-hmm. really, what they live off of is hoping to God that all this stuff renews. Mm-hmm. But over here on the wealth side of the uh, annuities and all that, boy, they are all about that now because mm-hmm. it makes them a bunch of money. Miss Johnson's not calling because her damn roof got blown off in Hurricane Scott, whatever. They are all over that. What are your thoughts on that? And then I got one more question. It's going to be a bomb I'm going to drop on you. <laughs> I can't wait. Um, I, I think a couple of things, right? And and it's interesting. So I, I've got a couple of different perspectives on it. One was from being on on the inside. You had, you know, you had Wells Fargo, which made a series of investments. Yep. But they also, so they, they weren't alone in that regard, right? I mean, Wachovia... No had already done the Palmer and K transaction, which became part of that ecosystem when in the financial crisis, Wells Fargo sort of picked up the, the Wachovia assets, right? Mm-hmm. And so you had the, some of the legacy, they got ABD that way. There was another bank in Northern California, I forget which one it was, but that they consumed. And so they're, they're sitting there, the banks are still you know sitting there developing the economies of scale and picking up insurance brokers in that process because those banks had, had made those decisions. So it was, it was fairly commonplace. But I, what I would tell you is, and, and I'll, I'll make it specific to the Wells ecosystem first, but I think it generalizes, which was in, in their minds, they have a financial relationship with their clients and that this would become just another offering that they would intermediate through the channels that they had. And so in, in the Wells world, they're looking for this asset to, to do what? I mean, you know, theoretically be a source of organic growth and all that. And, and it would be this very natural kind of cross-sell opportunity, which, again, I mean, th- th- there, are a lot, <laughs> there are a lot more theories around cross-sell than there are actual things that, that produce a, a cross-sell environment. Listen, you and I both know when it comes to retail insurance agencies, there's a whole lot of things said that are a whole hell of a lot easier to say than to do. Yeah, a lot Go of great ahead. theories Go out ahead. there. Right. A lot of great theories out there. But the reality was in the Wells ecosystem, they had 84 different product groups that were all being intermediated through one customer relationship manager. Correct. And so those businesses are then ultimately competing for shelf space on that relational strangle point. And, you know, could you wind up in a world where someone formed effective internal relationships, where someone had done something good for a particular client that reflected well? And so you had a the, the unusual outcome where someone really was responsive to trying to advance. Sure, yep. y- you could have that. But the reality was that the insurance asset was 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 largely left to its own devices to try to generate organic growth as if they weren't bank owned or, uh, at all. 100%. And you would have found that the, the cross-sell intersection was was really rather minimal. Yes. And for, for, a, number thing- of, for a number of different reasons, right? So mm-hmm. let's start with the biggest turnover in any bank or credit union is the tellers. So what you find is about every 30 days, 
in every bank branch because of the high teller turnover, who would be that person's point of contact when they stand in line, you had to go retrain the new group of tellers on saying, hey, who you got your insurance with? Well, we've got, you see where I'm going with that? Then you've got all the uh, financial uh, legal laws related to FINRA, and you've got certain people within the bank that are going, guys, we're going to get in a bunch of damn trouble if we do it different over here with our insurance department. Mm -hmm. And so you've got that competing thing. There's about 10 different things that make up that pot of chili. Please go on. No, you're right. And and that, that's exactly where I was going is the other thing is the banks are in a highly regulated environment, not to say that insurance isn't, but it's a highly restrictive regulated environment. You want to take your, you know, your client to a, a baseball game and buy them a hot dog. And next thing you know, you're going to get an OFAC questionnaire, you know, correct, say, correct. you know, and, and so the, the, the heightened level of compliance that goes on in the environment, it, it just, you know, I, I, I get the theory, right? I mean, yep. they're, they're fundamentally financial products and, and you already have a predetermined distribution channel, but. And, and listen, to your point, when we started this, when you look at it at face value and you think, okay, we've already got captured Mr. Johnson and Miss Johnson's stuff. Mm-hmm. Why not start or buy an independent or a, a, an agency or, or create one? And the, the word I was trying to find earlier was with credit unions, a CUSO, a, CUSO, a, a credit union service organization where mm-hmm. they basically start an insurance agency that is basically a division of that credit union. On, on the face, on the face, this looks like a no-brainer. It's Um, like, man, we got to do this. We're all going to get rich because we've already got all this stuff over here. It's an easy cross sell. This should just be a layup, but it never works that way, brother. The the other thing too is, is harm. I mean, you think about the kind of records that are kept in the context of a banking relationship and the kind of systems that support that. If you want to be able to do any of this stuff efficiently or at scale, you've got to create some kind of harmonization between the products and the systems through which those products are recorded and transacted and all the stuff right. that takes place in a traditional insurance agency environment. And then you know you try to find those intersections with the bank's core systems and, and there aren't any, right? And, and so again, I mean, on paper sounds sort of right, Perfect. right? You've got Perfect. these pre-existing relationships. You want to, you know, one of the things they always just say is you want to want to broaden the share of the wallet and all the stuff. And we want to be the one-stop shop for all of their financial products, transactions, and needs. It it sounds great. You know, I'm sure a kid could write up a really good business case summary for it in grad school. And, and it, it, and it works except for that it doesn't. Right. And and it doesn't mean it couldn't work. It doesn't mean someone can't be the one to solve that systems backend alchemy that right. actually make it fairly efficient to distribute potentially, you know, personalized products or some such thing in, in, in that kind of way, maybe, right. I mean, I don't want to foreclose on that as a, as a universal right. can never work kind of thing. Cause right. if someone works on the problem hard enough, you, you could eventually potentially find a solution. Sure. I just don't think it's been done well at that level. Right. And then, you know, as businesses begin to scale and you think about commercial or corporate banking relationships, now you got different buyers. You have different kinds of expertise that are required. The systems really don't reconcile well in terms right. of what you're doing in sort of large scale lending or banking relationships versus 
what's necessary from an advisory standpoint, large scale insurance. So yep. I think, you know, 98% of it has been largely, Hey, look, this is, this is a great business school exercise, but not a lot of value creation in, in those relationships. I agree. Last thing. And then we got to run, we'll drop some info on you here. So all of this is me just, uh, hearing things through the grapevine. You've got the Acrisures, the hubs, the PCFs. PCFs seemed to be a year ago, year to a uh, year and a half ago, two years ago. They were the Kentucky Derby winner on gobbling up mergers and acquisitions and gaining steam and running at a rate that uh, it was hard for everybody to keep up with. And then interest rates go up, uh, the environment changes relative to the economy. And a few months after hearing some of the things I heard, you all of a sudden hear that they've laid off 55 people, that they've brought in a, an additional additional investment group that has pumped money into PCF. Don't know if all that's true or not. That's just me hearing things from from they, from general people out there. Where are we at right now relative to mergers and acquisitions with those types of companies that have been so bullish for really the past two or three years versus where they are today? Yeah, I I think there will be some differentiation in terms of the interest and the ability for a lot of these acquisition platforms to continue to conduct business in the way that they did. I think this environment favors companies that were, shall we say, conservatively capitalized, uh-huh. that had less of a reliance on debt capital to continue forward on the path that they were on. So you think about, you know, you think about a, a, a business like a Marsh agencies, for example, where they have a connection to a larger corporate estate, a larger corporate enterprise that is more conservatively capitalized. And so are, are they as constrained in terms of their desire and ability to go effectuate a transaction if they so choose? Probably not. They're, they're probably fine. And they're, and they're looking at a world or, you know, a Gallagher, for example, are, are probably looking out into the world very opportunistically. Because now, you know, it's it's not, you know, Ben-Hur and a cast of thousands that are all competing for the same assets. Now, they, they tend to look for scaled assets, which which still are, are commanding a premium, you know, scaled and sophisticated assets that are still commanding a premium. So I don't know that they're necessarily going to see the, the multiples on businesses like that, the businesses that they're commonly interested in coming way down or anything like that. But I, I think they're still very much in the game and they're, they're probably looking at the world as being competitively advantaged at the moment in, in, in terms of their ability and capacity to do those things. I think you, you look at the businesses that were aggressive in their incorporation of debt, particularly when you know the, the capital environment was extremely permissive and you know credit was cheap and, and, and all that stuff. And we're getting into that world of you know 7x or more leverage. You think about the financial chemistry that that is relying on, and then you think about the impact of an environment where you go from you know, 25 or 50 basis points as your risk-free rate to 10 times that yep. in 18 months. And it completely changes 
the, the you know the, the impact on that uh, of that kind of financial structure on the net income of the business right i mean it, it, it you're basically running it real 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 tight real hot and so i i think the more conservatively capitalized businesses are are really the ones that can continue forward i think those that looked at the world and said look as long as debt's cheap we can we we can run this up fast all of a sudden debt's not cheap and and the other thing that I, I think sometimes gets overlooked is, you know, when when these covenants are put together, I mean, you know, what 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 are those provisions? I mean, mm. is, is it just going out and taking another sequential chunk of debt to mm. go finance looking forward activities, or does that have a rearward facing impact on the capital structure that you already have in place? Correct. So are you, are you, you're not just blending, oh, hey, look, you know, we had all of this capital we consumed in a much lower cost environment. Now we've got to take on this additional capital that's going to bring with it a higher coupon. And so we're averaging up a little bit and we've got to be very careful incrementally. That's one world. I think what people are finding is much more commonly than not, that next increment of capital that you take down has a repricing effect on everything you already did. Bingo. And so, you know, imagine a world where, I mean, let's say, hey, you, you know, your your cost of capital was, you know, you pick a number, 700 basis points, right? And it goes up to 950 or 10. And people are looking at that saying, well, you know, what what's the big deal? It's just 250 basis points. No. Look, look at the sequential difference. If you go from seven to 10, what's three on seven? Right. That that's a that's a big change in your in in your financial chemistry, your cost of capital. And so I, I think that's had a, a, a pretty significant impact on who's participating actively in the marketplace. And I think those that took a more conservative approach and, and those that were vigilant about liquidity have found themselves you know, able to continue to do what they do. I, I think others, perhaps not as much. Well, and to your point, you know, we have an old saying in Alabama that plain speak is best understood. If you're having to take on capital or doing a capital raise and going back to that back look behind you, what you're doing in essence is you have you have watered down to some degree, maybe a lot to some degree of that retail agent that thought the stock that maybe they were getting at the time of the sale of that agency was worth X. And now I've taken on more investors, which then watered that stock down behind me. So now that age local retail agent stock may only be worth Y. Correct. Am I correct about that? You've you, you on like a, a, a really interesting point that I yeah, think. Yeah, I have. The, One the, that. The private company aggregation platforms, the PE backed aggregation platforms are, are going to be forced to take a look at, right? Because huh? there's this sort of mythology that exists there that says value of the asset never goes down. Yeah. And, and it, that is mythology, right? Because, I mean, look, even in the public, in, in, if publicly traded, Insurance brokers and, and 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 distribution firms vary with market fluctuations, financial performance, and all the stuff. How can they go up and down? And and you know, partly you know, publicly traded peers are what actually goes into or sure. is a component. I assure you, every one of these sort of private equity backed aggregation and consolidation platforms, as they come up with some kind of 
you know, theoretical proxy for the value of their shares that they seek to assign and then impute into their M&A activities and all the other stuff Correct. and take into transactions and recaps and all the stuff. But if the public guys can go up and down in terms of their valuation, what makes a private company platform so special that they can't, right? right. And then particularly when they take on these sort of succeeding rounds of capitalization, either to sustain existing commitments or to continue to expand the platform. But if, you, if you're doing the former, I would suggest to you that you're probably not in a, in a very advantaged position approaching the markets to say, I need more money to cover what I already did, right? right. And, so, and, and so one wonders about the kind of terms mm -hmm. that the businesses that are going to the marketplace seeking additional capital in an environment where capital is pretty powerful, you know, it's, 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 it's dear right now, right? I mean, so you're coming out to the market seeking capital at a less than advantageous time. And there, there's usually a reason for that, right? Because you need it. And so what is the impact then logically on the value of existing holdings? And what are you giving up? To those third parties, if it's not debt, right? If you're if you're taking on some kind of hybrid or security or preferred security, whatever it is, you know, those are pretty sophisticated investors. And right. they, they've been known to, you know, they've been known to take a certain advantage of situations. Right. And so what is the impact of bringing in a sophisticated late in the day at a moment of need on the, the legacy holders of the security? Mm. I think that's a great question. And the other thing that I, I would also point out too, and, and this is this is something I think a bunch of a bunch of the businesses are, you know, probably going to want to you know consider or contemplate, you know, through time is is look. I mean, th these securities are illiquid too. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, and so yeah. I mean, the, the potential there. I mean, certain certain of the models you probably heard some some fuss about. You know, okay, but I, I didn't intend to do this for another twenty years, and 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 now I'm holding this sort of illiquid, you know, lottery ticket. You know, I, I I've been holding this for a minute. I I see all these cute little you know exhibits showing me how much it's worth. Right. But if I can't do anything with it, it's right. it's not a liquid security. Sure. And so if you're not paying a dividend, you're not doing. I mean, I, I'm holding something that you keep telling me has value. I, I want to see it. So, right. And so I, I think that's a very real thing for a lot of these aggregation platforms, particularly the ones that aren't doing successive recaps every three years. So so last question, I'm gonna make it real fast. Bradley's telling me I gotta go. Real quick. You you mm -hmm. you're a man who has uh contacts with all of these different companies that we've been talking about today. Would you say that there's a prevailing thought among some, maybe not all, maybe all, that that may be uh Maybe oh shit, we might have over purchased for some of these agencies. Would you say that's a prevailing thought? I don't know if there's the belief that they necessarily overpaid, that aggregators necessarily overpaid for specific assets. I think there there's probably the prevailing belief that with all of these platforms running around, trying to compete to consume businesses as fast as they can. That there probably was not a, that there there was indiscriminate transaction activity occurring, and uh -huh. everyone's sitting there saying the same thing. So they can't all be telling the truth, right? right? Everyone's saying we only buy the best agencies, 
we uh, we get a discount because we're such an impressive platform that people are just knocking our, our, our doors down. So we get the best assets cheaper than anybody else. But if all 40 of you are saying the same thing, then that, that, that math doesn't square. Right. So in reality, people were seeking scale, right? right and right. They, they got that investment capital that, that was seeking a rate of return. And there are all these opportunities to potentially do really cool and interesting things with all of these businesses that you acquired. But keep in mind, it's the downside of, of third-party investment capital is saying, right. look, you're, you're buying this portfolio of assets on average at, you know, pick a number, 33 EBITDA margin. I'm, I'm, I'm really not interested in your contribution to that, taking it down to 28 EBITDA margin by making all kinds of investments. If you think that's really neat, you can develop some kind of super compelling like portfolio based on your intersection with that portfolio, do it on the next guy's watch because I'm not real interested in watching my my margin environment be degraded by 5% because you're telling me five years from now, it's going to make a whole differentiated asset that's far superior to anything else in the marketplace. Do it on the next guy's watch. Yeah. All right. So that's that's always the challenge, that that sort of trade-off, that coordination challenge, which is which, whichever investment pot you're in at that moment in time, it's get the capital deployed, get the assets in. There, there's a certain ravenousness that then goes into that, that market environment with 40 of these platforms running around trying to do similar things. And it just calls into question whether or not there was a whole lot of discernment and a whole lot of discipline around a really targeted, coherent investment strategy. Mm-hmm. And I think if, if the suspicion is, hey, they're all saying they only got the best assets that perfectly fit their ecosystem and they paid less than everyone else would have had to pay for it, all 40 of them can't be telling the same story at the same time and have it all be right. Right. And so were some better and some worse in terms of really discerning and getting value for the capital they were intermediating and, and being consistent, being disciplined, going towards the deals that made sense for them and away from others. I, I think if people think that probably wasn't always true. They're, they're probably right. Yeah. Rob, I got to run. I love you, brother. I could sit here and talk to you for six hours. Bradley probably knows I would. Uh, I let me see it going that way. Hey, so Paul's like, Hey, we gotta go. Yeah, we gotta go. We gotta go. Hey, uh, I'm going to end so this thing. You guys, man, this has been a ton of fun. Yes, it has. I hope these agents, uh, hope they read between the lines with some things. Hope they, uh, <laughs> hope they listen. Hope they listen maybe twice because there's some interesting, uh, little things that were brought up in this conversation, but let me, let me go ahead and shut it down. Guys, rewards come from action, not discussion. Get your ass out from behind that desk today. Go out into the big, bad world. Create relationships. Become the mayor of your village. Make money for your family, for your wife, for your husband, for your kid's college fund, for your parents that are struggling, your in-laws that are struggling out there. Go make money for them. Figure out what your why is and go do it every day. Go write good business for the companies that you represent and write good business for the agencies that you represent. Bradley Flowers, I love you. Thanks, man. Thanks, Rob. Rob, thank you. Blessing, guys. Thanks a bunch for putting up with me. You are listening to the Insurance Guys podcast, and we love each one of you. Thank you so much for being a part of our family. And we'll see you back here real soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Insurance Guys podcast. If you need to know more about me or you need to get in touch with Scott, you can always reach me at theinsuranceguyonline.com. 
or email me at scott at iprotectinsurance.com. And if you need to get in touch with Mr. Bradley Flowers, go to portalinsurance.com or email him at bradley at portalinsurance.com. Guys, we love you. Thank you so much for listening to our show and being a part of our family. And we look forward to seeing you again next week on the next episode of the Insurance Guys podcast. Take care.